Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the enthusiasm, Lord, of worship that you deserve. Let us never, Lord, be ashamed to engage with you with everything you've given us. Our heart, our emotions, our mind to think carefully, Lord, your thoughts after you. Know in a cognitive way who you actually are. Respond to that spiritually, emotionally. I'm so glad to be back with my family, Lord. I pray that you'd give me grace now to open your word and that we would know its truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It is good to be home. Missed you all. I was in uh, the unlikely place of Chattanooga, Tennessee last weekend. I don't know why you're laughing. They mocked me plenty for being from California, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not a good time to come from Southern California to a place like Chattanooga. Um, I always appreciate the just the ease with which you give me the, uh, the freedom and the, the confidence to leave and to minister elsewhere. I got to do something I haven't done in a quite a long time. Uh, a young man who I've known since he was two years old was ordained uh, to gospel ministry last weekend. It's really strange to have toddlers ordained as fellow pastors. <laughs> very, very unsettling. Uh, but Sam Melton, who's only 25 years old, is doing a great job at Calvary Baptist uh, Church in Red Bank, which is a suburb of Chattanooga, as it was explained to me. And it was good to worship with another church family, good to see how faith and love and Christian uh, behavior is expressed so far from home, but there's nothing like being home. I genuinely love you people. I really do. You mean the world to me. You've changed my life and shaped it in so many ways that I can really never adequately explain to any single one of you. Uh, that's because we really are a spiritual family. When we say brother and sister, in the church world, that often means I've forgotten your name. And, <laughs> and that's, all that, that's all that's really happening there. Hey, brother, can't remember this guy's name. Maybe somebody else will mention it. But the spiritual truth of that, the foundation of that, is that we are not merely co-belligerents. We're not like Kiwanis members or Lions Club members or people who root for the sport, same sports team. We really are family. We have God as our Father. We have one another as brothers and sisters. We respond to a Savior who laid down His life for us, the Apostle John would teach us, so we should lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. And I felt that. Being part of another congregation for a few hours, uh, grilling, because that's part of the ordination process, is to grill the young pastor. We questioned him for nearly three hours about every bit of the Christian faith, taught him a few things along the way. He was very responsive. And to be part of that larger section of God's family that is not my family on a day-to-day -day basis was very meaningful, and it made me appreciate you all the more. And that's actually what Peter wants to talk to us about in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you'll open your Bibles there, he's going to talk about family. He's going to talk about babies. He's going to talk about life and growth. And he's going to begin by talking about truth. And truth is a hard concept in America in 2022, so much so that six years ago, the Oxford English Dictionary declared the word of the year was post-truth. 
And they said that post-truth described the current situation in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. If you went to sleep for a second there, let me tell you what that means in my own language. The Oxford English Dictionary recognized that in the last few years, a new set of circumstances had shaped the world in which discovering what was actually objectively no doubt true, for instance, we are in Huntington Beach, California, I'm standing, you're seated, those are objective, visible, confirmable facts, that those objective facts were far less influential in shaping what people everywhere believed, what the public believed, because the objective facts that anybody could inspect if they wanted to had been replaced by something more powerful to the public, which is their personal belief and their emotions regarding whatever was being discussed. It's stunning to live in this world, but you've seen it. Some of you have had friendships and families torn apart because no one can agree any longer on what is true. And appeals to things that used to settle the argument. I recently talked to somebody who maintained the innocence of a criminal. And when I showed him that the man was actually in prison and that his victims were not only alive but still talking about it and enormously credible, and their stories of their their suffering were verified by people who had no personal or financial incentive in the matter. He still said, I don't believe it. And the reason is the person in prison meant a great deal to him. It was understandable and sad. But you need to know in a post-truth world that the claim of the Bible is not merely that it is a good idea or a superior set of values. Danny's story, this young man that was just baptized, who I only met on Tuesday night. No idea that he was going to be baptized uh, this weekend until a day or two ago. He came to Christ in a very normal way in the, 21, in the 21st century. He wanted to get his life back on track. He wanted a better orientation. Am I telling the story correctly? Danny's sitting right here. Sorry, Danny. I told you I might mention you. <laughs> That's normal. And Danny, your life is on track, on a better track than you even begin to know and that I can even tell you. But none of that matters, Danny. None of that matters, Crosspoint. Unless the person, the values that Danny has embraced is actually true. If it's merely a good idea and a better way to live, but there's no factual, historical reliability, if all of this is make-believe that only makes us feel better for a little while, it's pointless. You could go to bed believing every night that the tooth fairy comes and guards you while you sleep, and that's why you wake up in the morning, and that might make you feel better, but eventually you might realize that that was a really pathetic belief and that you were sad forever believing it. The claim of the gospel all the way through the Bible, and the claim of Jesus himself, the Son of God, promised in prophecy in the Bible, and you can look those prophecies up for yourself, is not only that it is good news and better news and the best news, but that most of all, it's all true. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter is addressing these suffering 
scattered Christians who are beginning to pay a price for their faith, and he tells them what happened to them. And these first few verses are kind of dense, so I'm going to read it slowly with you and walk you through it and then tell you what a difference it makes to all of us. Peter says to them, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Number one Bible reading tip around here? Slow down. Peter says, when you obeyed the truth, in other words... Somebody came to you and told you the truth about God, about life, about death, about Jesus, and you obeyed that truth. You responded to it, and Peter says the effect of that is you were purified. You were not only forgiven, you were cleansed. You received a whole new life, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We'll come back to that. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now he's going to get back to talking to them about how they were saved, how they were cleansed, how they were given a new life. Since you have been born again, the word picture changes. Your salvation, your identity, your position in Jesus is so vast and so great that the Bible uses many different ways to describe it. The first is you have been purified. Your souls are cleansed and pure and clean now. Verse 23, it's not only that, you've also been, what's the phrase? Born again. You have been born again. Not of perishable seed, in other words, not an ordinary seed that may give life for a while but then will die. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding, what's it say? Word of God. You following so far? Peter is saying to these readers, you heard the good news about Jesus and you obeyed it. You were told the truth about Jesus, and you came under it. You gave up on yourself. You turned your back on your sin. You turned your face toward the Savior, Jesus, and that purified you. So now he says, love each other because you have been, verse 23, born again. And your new birth, your new life, is not any ordinary seed in the world that might give life to a plant or to a person. No, that has happened through the living and abiding Word of God. For, and there's quotes there. Now Peter's going into his Bible. He's quoting his Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains, how long? forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is Peter telling us? That God's word, this little paragraph is all about God's word, and the first thing he wants to remind them is that God's word gave us new life when we believed. And you can view that as a seed that was planted up in your life and sprouted to give new life and new fruit. Or you can look at it from a human perspective of someone being born. You were already born physically. Peter here is using the language of Jesus. Now you've been born again. You've received not only physical life, but spiritual life. That's exactly what happened to Danny a few days ago. 
He was physically alive in the world, but spiritually dead and shut off to God. And the word of God showed him the weight. I was listening. The weight, the burden of his sin. He understood that Jesus could take it from him. He trusted Jesus. Jesus did just that. And buddy, you now have a whole new life. And just like a five-year-old, as alive as anybody else, not yet understanding the depth, the glory, the beauty of how wonderful this life can actually be. All of that, Peter said, was done by God's word when we believed. You have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Notice those words, living and abiding. The Bible's claim, and many of us have experienced it, and if you haven't, it is entirely likely that you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, because many of us have experienced this, that when we read this ordinary-looking book, we're not just discovering a new set of facts, we're not just learning new ideas, we're not just evaluating our life compared to an ancient set of values that can be put between the covers of a book, we are having a living encounter with God himself. Because his word in Scripture is living and it is abiding. The book of Hebrews says that the word is living and active, and it gives a different kind of word picture that it can cut through life to discern things like your motives. It'll show you the truth of your heart. It will open you up and show you the truth about yourself, of course, because God made you. And God not only made you, he loves you, and through his word, he continues speaking to you. Now, how is that life expressed? Because really, that's the burden that Peter has here. He's told these suffering readers that in spite of the difficulties of their life, they've actually received the best news in the world because they've been given a whole new life through the Word of God that is like an indestructible seed that brings new life. They are like children being born into a family, and that the Word of God is not only alive, it is abiding. In other words, it will stay with them, and it intends to change them. How should we, if we are in that condition as disciples of Jesus, how should we respond to it? Look back with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, what are we supposed to do? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 22 blew my mind a couple weeks ago when I heard of God has given us new life is this. We love our brothers and sisters in God's family. We have, been, we have had our souls purified by our obedience to the truth, and that has happened for a sincere brotherly love. We are to, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. And that's a mouthful. Thank you for your patience in listening to that. That sentence is dense. It took me a while to understand it. But here it is. And it couldn't be any more timely in March 2022 in America than something that happened two seconds ago. What Peter is telling you is that the purpose of your salvation is for you to love others. You were saved, verse 22, look at it very carefully, you were saved for a sincere brotherly love. 
You weren't saved by brotherly love. Jesus had to save you himself. No other human being could do that. You were saved for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, you were saved so that you could start loving other people as God's brothers and sisters with you. In other words, a loving God saved you so that you would love others. That's the point. You were saved not only to go off and enjoy your own life, you were saved so that you could and you would love others. Until you come to Jesus, the humbling claim of the Bible is that you are too self-centered to really truly love anybody but yourself. And that your self-motivation and your self-interest is so much with you that it spoils and ruins every relationship you have, even those that you experience and you know because you're made in God's image are loving toward other people. My pastor, my predecessor here, was a brilliant man with, who was great with a one-liner. He would explain it this way. I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. <laughs> Your new life in Christ is to take the focus off your self-interest and your self-love so that you could love others. That's the commandment. Verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. See the connection? I want you to see it because Peter's not quoting Isaiah 40 to show off. That sentence is dense on purpose. Peter is telling ordinary people, many of them illiterate, listen, when you came to Jesus, something amazing happened to you. Your soul that you felt so weighted down by shame and guilt and sin because I resonated with this young man's testimony because that's exactly how I felt when I came to Christ. It wasn't a physical burden, but it might as well have been. It was so real and so heavy to me before I rolled that burden onto the back of Jesus and he took it away. You were saved and your soul was purified. You were born again so that you could love other people and Peter's not again quoting Isaiah for no particular reason. He's reaching back into his Bible and reading scriptures written 700 years earlier to tell them this, the eternal, abiding, living Word of God that cannot and will not be destroyed because it is the speech of God Himself has come into your life so that you will now be able to love each other like brothers and sisters. Couldn't be any more timely. We've lived through this pandemic together, and this is the conversation that every pastor has when we leave, how's your church? And I tell them the same report, my church is absolutely amazing. They have been so loving toward the Lord and toward one another that I feel in some ways like it's barely touched us. There's been real suffering, real pain, actual death, real loss here. But the way this family has held together is absolutely astonishing, and the only reason is Jesus because you've loved one another. You've seen past deep differences of opinion, deep political divides, every kind of reason that has the entire world on fire and fighting. You have looked past all of that, borne each other's burdens well enough so that we have been loving each other. And the question is, Outside this beautiful, blessed little oasis, as you watch the news and look across the country, would you say that Christians are now characterized more by their love than anything else? Eh. 
Depends. Who are we talking? Which pastor? What church? Which congregation? Listen to how differently Jesus told us it should be. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Read this with me. Jesus, on his way to the cross, gave his disciples a commandment. We're just reading the words of Jesus. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The proof, the calling card, the flag that we raise is love. It's all true. But it's hard to believe and even harder to see if there's no love. Peter's also telling you that you don't have long to do it. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For, and here he's quoting, this is the quotation from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Now look carefully at verse 24 and 25 and ask yourself, why is Peter choosing to quote Isaiah talking about the fragility and the brevity of human life? It seems a little disjointed, doesn't it? You've been born again because the Word of God cannot be destroyed. It lives and it abides forever. Unlike, Peter says, human life on this earth. We, we, we humans, we mortals, we're like grass. Our glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. It's the word of the Lord that remains forever. Why put that there? He's telling you, you don't have long to love others. You're not long for this world. The love you're going to extend in the name of Jesus to other people, do it now while you have opportunity. You're not promised tomorrow. This has been a heavy couple of weeks for our church and my circle, folks you don't know, because people have died suddenly. They didn't know that the conversation they were having with their grandkids would be the last that they would suddenly be in glory. And that the opportunity they had to love their grandchildren and other people was much shorter than they actually expected. Please, take Peter's admonition. Your soul has been purified. You have been born again. You have believed the good news that was preached to you. The Word of God did all that, giving you new life, putting you in God's family, giving you a hope that is indestructible because it's actually true. And Peter says the astonishing thing about all of that is the proof of it and what you're supposed to do about it is to love other people. There's so much in what I'll call, for lack of a better term, conservative Christianity like ours. I'm not talking politically, I'm talking biblically. That actually believes that Jesus was the Son of God that died on the cross and rose from the grave. 
that that was real, that it wasn't metaphorical, that it wasn't symbolic, that it wasn't a made-up story, that Jesus actually died and rose from the grave to give people like you and me eternal life. That kind of conservative, serious Christianity. It's completely disconcerting that so many sectors of people who believe the truth of God's Word show so little love to others when they do it. Something's wrong. Peter's saying just the opposite. Because your soul has been purified, because you've been born again, the imperative, the commandment is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now that your heart is pure, you can love. If we're not known by our love, by what Jesus commanded us to do, we're missing the mark however saved we are. You're missing your purpose and you may miss your time frame because, again, you don't have long to live, love people like this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's a second thing we are to do because of what the Word of God has done for us when it gave us new life. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Doesn't that sound great? Wouldn't social media just be a whole lot better if that verse alone were obeyed? You want to know the state of the world? Just look at social media. Watch Facebook. God help you. Jump on Twitter. See what happens there behind the veil of anonymity. Instagram's better because it's mostly pictures, but there's a lot of relational violence there too. Where people, especially young girls, show each other what the others weren't invited to and what they're not part of. Look what we're doing. You're not invited. You can't sit with us. See this life? See this boat? See these friends? See this party? You're not here. What a shame. Click, click, click. How would Peter describe it 2,000 years ago? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What's the, what's the imperative again? I'm teaching you a Bible study skill. When you're reading these dense sentences, focus on what you're actually told and commanded to do. The commandment first is, love one another. You've been born again. The Word of God, the seed of God, has given you new life. You're in God's family now. So, act like it by loving each other with a brotherly love. Love each other like the spiritual siblings you are. Second idea, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Of course, if I love you, I'm not going to treat you in any of those ways, right? It is only people who hate one another, who are indifferent to one another, that use malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What are we told to do? Number two, you put away the old things that destroy you and destroy other people. You refuse to think about others with malice. You refuse to slander them. You give up on hypocrisy, something that social media has put on steroids because we all have the capacity of making our life look amazing <laughs> when we're actually quietly dying on the inside. 
I'm not super happy to be back on social media. I was completely off for two years, and then the pandemic started. And on Sunday morning when we were locked in, there were only going to be about four people here with a camera so that I could preach a terrible sermon because there were no people in the room, and it completely threw me off. I realized, oh my goodness, this is a whole new world. We're now in a science fiction movie. If I'm going to connect with people, I'm going to have to get on to social media. And there I am, but I'm not actually loving all of it. Because it's filled with malice and slander and hypocrisy and deceit. And I have to be really careful, really curate my relationships. If you really have a new life in God through His Word, you put those things away because those things are the contrary to love. They're the opposite of love. People who treasure the new life they've been given don't gladly return to the old one. We should have nothing to do, because we are now God's children, we should have nothing to do with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. I'm thinking specifically about social media because every one of those vices is put on steroids by social media. It fuels envy. It can be used with malice. It's based on deceit. It can easily lend itself to hypocrisy. And boy, does it make people envious. This isn't an anti-social media rant. This is a call. This is a summon to use all things for the glory of God and the good of others, including social media. And to not let anything, including your news feed and the TV that's on in your house hours a day, change your birthright in a way that you misuse it so that you don't come forward loving people more than you did. And then, there's verse 2 and 3. Like newborn infants. That's not a surprising picture now. Because Peter told me up in verse 23 that I was born again. He said that the seed of the Word of God had come into my life and given me life. A new life was sprouting, growing. Two different word pictures. One from plants, one from human life. But either way, I have new life. Now, Peter says, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. And some of you may have a translation that says the pure milk of the Word. Why is that? Because Peter, I won't get into the details, Peter here is using a word play, and this is a good translation of what Peter wrote down in Greek. But when he says the pure spiritual word, the, the pure spiritual milk, there's no doubt that he's talking about the Word of God. That's why, depending on the committee, some said, let's just put the Word of God right there so that people know exactly what he's talking about. Many other committees like this one said, let's just say what it literally says, the pure spiritual milk, and we'll let people figure it out. What he's talking about is not some weird course in Los Angeles where you're going to go get a new name lie down in a dark room and have all kinds of words of all kinds of weird out of body experiences he is saying to them just as the word was once preached to you that you discovered was good news just as the undying indestructible word of god once gave you new life 
You keep hungering after it. Third expression of the new life of God. You hunger for more of God's word so that you can keep growing. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's happening here? People who taste how good God is want to hear more from Him. Simple as that. Peter's not casting doubt on their salvation. He already told them, you have been born again. This seed of the Word of God has come into your life and given you new life. So, love each other. So put away the things from the old life that used to tear you up and will continue to tear others up. You have a new life now. Be done with the things of the old life. Why does he say in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good? Because one of the realities of the Christian life is that people who are actually born again and actually know God often struggle with little appetite for his word. Isn't it true? No guilt, no shame. I'm just going to ask you a diagnostic question. Did you pick up your Bible this morning to bring it to church? Or did you open your smartphone where you left it last Sunday? For many Christians, this is it. This is the one meal. Listen to Peter. Let him instruct you. Like newborn infants... What did he say? Long desire the milk of the Word of God. Long for the pure spiritual milk because when you do, you'll grow up into the salvation you already enjoy. You ever been around a baby? You ever notice how insistent they are on eating? Every new parent gives up on sleeping for several years. Why? Because you can reason with adults. You can tell an adult, we're too busy. Now's not a good time. That place is too expensive. We'll have to go somewhere else. I'm sorry the restaurant is closed. I'm sorry everybody in the restaurant got coronavirus. It's not a good place to eat right now. You can reason with an adult. Babies don't care. What will babies do when they're hungry? They'll scream and cry and raise the roof on your house until the food arrives. And Peter says as an instruction, in other words, it's not natural necessarily. It's something that has to be cultivated. It's something that has to be chosen long for the pure spiritual milk. Desire it. How do you train yourself to desire anything? The first thing you do is you, by faith, trust that God will speak to you when you open His book and you sit down to listen. Be very candid with you. I'm a pastor. I'm a professional Christian, if you will. It's a horrible way to think about it, but it's true. And because I'm an ordinary, frail, sinful human being, I have not desired the Word of God every day of my life. There are many times I sit down to eat and drink from the Word because I know I need to and because I know I should. And without exception, if I sit down with my Heavenly Father 
and say, God, I'm distracted, I'm angry, I'm sad, I can barely think straight. The to-do list is so long and the calls come in so frequently and there's so many emails piled up and so many text messages coming in that I can barely pay any attention. But I'm going to leave my phone in the next room and for the next 10 or 15 minutes, please meet with me and talk to me. Never once has God through His living and abiding Word failed to show up and feed me. And often it's literally put me on my knees in repentance in telling Him how wrong I am. And my father says, I know. I watched you. I was there the whole time. Other times He comforts me with compassion and mercy. And He reassures me of the grace of Jesus. How does all that happen? That happens by showing up to eat from the Word of God. Because people who taste how good the Lord is want to hear more from Him. So make a schedule and keep an appointment. And if you have new life, please be serious about loving others and growing yourself up. You don't have long. The good you will have by loving others in this life is very short. James will say, life is like a vapor. I don't know if I'll preach again. I have friends who won't, who are now too sick to likely ever preach again. That could be me. It will be me someday. Now, you're not a preacher, but do you have a marriage? Do you have children? You have a job, you have a school, you have friends, and the only commonality is cycling or sports or cheering on the Rams, whatever it is. Can't you see that you're there strategically as the one person in the room who's spiritually alive, who is the son, the daughter of God, and that you don't have long to love those people and tell them the good news? That your brothers and sisters, both in Ukraine and Russia, because the Russian people did not choose the war that's going on, they're suffering too. Their suffering has just begun. They don't even know what their life will now be. We're sending from our mission fund, we're sending money over there to help as best we can. Why? Because of love. We don't know who we're going to be helping. They'll never be able to thank us on this side of heaven, but we don't have long. We have to be serious about loving others and do not think that you will someday grow up spiritually and be like Jesus. Your time is right here, right now. This is when you do it. You don't put it off. Honestly, for too many Christians, what has been happening is you have been putting off year by year, getting serious about walking with Jesus. Maybe in January, that's when you renew all of your expectations and all of your goals. How are those doing? There's no shill and there's no shame and no guilt here. There's only a call, a heartfelt call from a fellow struggler, from your brother in the family of God to do this. If you have new life, be serious. Be in dead earnest today about loving other people and growing up to be like Jesus. And if you're not sure of that, if you're like my brother Danny and you're just not sure, you've come seeking God, but you're not sure you can find Him, I have good news for you. Jesus died for sinners to save people like you and people like me. Believe that good news today and the new life I've been telling you about will be yours.
Let's pray. Can I start where I ended? Are you quite sure that you have eternal life? If it's a hope-so situation, could I just invite you to make it a no-so deal instead? Would you say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've, like this young man said, like Bruce said, I feel the weight of my sin. I know I'm separated from you. I know I've offended you. I know I've come up short. I know I've also gone too far. All those are descriptions of sin. If you're conscious of your need for salvation, forgiveness, new life, could I just invite you to trust Jesus this morning? Confess to him, agree with him about your need and your sinfulness and ask him to give you the new life I've been telling you about. Just take a moment and call out to him in prayer. Say, Jesus, I agree with you. You've told the truth. I've sinned. You're holy. I feel the weight. I feel the accusation of my sins against me. I've broken your laws. My conscience tells me so. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me new life. He will. He did for me. He'll do it for you. He will not cast out anybody who comes to him. That's Jesus' promise to you. And if this good news is very familiar to you, are you growing up? Are you insistent in the word like a baby? Do you insist on eating? Can you see the change from one year to the next? Most clearly of all, does it show up in love? Would everybody say you're a loving person? And you're more loving now than you were two years ago? If not, Christian, something's wrong. Talk to your father about it. Ask his new life, ask him to make his new life grow up in you and change your old life. Put that old junk away and get on to the business of loving other people and becoming like Christ yourself. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time we've enjoyed this morning. Singing, praising, witnessing a baptism reading your word, which is dense, but ultimately, Lord, I pray clear to call us to be more like Christ, love others as he did, and share this good news as Jesus, our Savior, himself did. Let us grow, Lord, into his likeness. Let us keep the appointment. Let us meet with you again today and again tomorrow and every day so that we, by being nourished by your words, grow up to the measure of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name and Crosspoint Church said, amen. amen. Folks, if you need prayer, there's some amazing people right over here waiting to pray with you. God bless you. I'm going to race out to the lobby. I hope to meet a few of you on your way out. Thank you for coming out. Love you.